Hello and welcome to another episode of CISO Tradecraft, the show that provides you with the knowledge, information, and wisdom to be a better security leader. My name is G. Mark Hardy, and today I've got a special guest here in the studio, Kevin Fiscus, who's here to talk to us about cyber deception. This is some really cool stuff, so I hope you'll stick around. As always, please go ahead and continue to follow us, and if you haven't done so on LinkedIn, you can go ahead and follow us there. I would like to give a quick shout out to our sponsor. Did you know that over 63% of cyber breaches are caused by third parties? Not surprising when many are still using ineffective custom questionnaires. CyberGRX uses a modern approach, leveraging outside-in scanning, threat intelligence, MITRE attack, coupled with comprehensive data analytic capabilities to provide a 360-degree view of your third-party cyber risk posture. This visibility into your complete third-party ecosystem enables you to identify the weakest links in your supply chain, as well as those that are the most vulnerable to cyber attacks like ransomware. Designed and built by CISOs, CyberGRX is the market's first and largest third-party cyber risk exchange. Visit them on cybergrx.com. And now, back to our show. Kevin, welcome. Nice to see you. Oh, thank you, G-Mark. It's great to be here. Now, we've, we've known each other for, gee, was at least, I don't know, 15 years? It's been a while, yeah. All right. And so, um, anyway, we were talking the other night about you know, a little bit of background. So, Kevin and I both have the privilege to work as SANS, as a SANS instructor. So this is one of the things we do in addition to all the other crazy stuff that we do. And uh, Kevin has come up with some really amazing ideas. And we sat and talked about them for well over an hour. And I said, we've got to get you on the show. And fortunately, I was able to go ahead and corral him. And because it's a podcast, I don't have to pay his hourly rate. <laughs> yes. But uh, yeah, so anyway, tell, tell me a little bit about your background and kind of what you used to do and how did you get here? Sure. Obviously, uh, as you mentioned, I'm a, uh, a principal instructor with SANS, pr predominantly teaching classes. Uh, the two classes that I predominantly teach are the Security 504, which is uh, hacker techniques, exploits, and incident handling, and then Security 560, so network penetration testing and ethical hacking. In addition to the work I do for SANS, I, I run my own security consulting company, Cyber Defense Advisors, where I do penetration testing, risk assessments, security assessments, program development, those types of things. I've been involved in the IT industry since, oh gosh, I want to say 1990 and uh, started working for uh, doing IT work for the United States Air Force. Got out of the Air Force and did a wide variety of crazy things, everything from application development to networking to computer repair. Ended up getting involved in the information security industry in the mid-90s. Uh, read some articles, thought it was really cool, and have really been focused on information security ever since. And then Fairly recently, over the last couple of years, I've developed this interest in this concept of cyber deception, which is ultimately what got us started in this conversation. In, in this, yeah. this conversation. Yeah, so that's kind of interesting. So uh, Kevin's definitely the real deal here. He's been doing this for quite a while and a tremendous number of insights and can always enjoy catching up with them because I, they said I learned something new every time. But in this particular case, what's happened, he was talking about cyber deception. And I'm thinking, this is fascinating. The more we talk, the more I learned. And I realized that You've got more than just a passing interest in this. What have you actually, what have you actually, what are you building toward? Sure. So I'll give you a little bit of, to get there, I'm going to give you a little bit of background on my involvement with cyber deception. So I stumbled across this concept a couple of years ago. And when I was first introduced to it, it was 
mildly confusing to say the least. I'm looking at this concept and I'm going, I don't really know what in the world I'm, I'm, I'm looking at here. Like I, I'm taking a look at it and I didn't understand it. And then at one point in time, it kind of clicked in my head. And I thought, you know, if I was trying to do a penetration test against an organization that was using these concepts and these ideas, it would be a terrible experience. And it sort of was like that aha moment. And once I had that revelation, I was like, wow, this stuff is amazing. And I spent the next six to nine months trying to figure out why I was wrong. Like it, it, it felt wrong to me to find some technology concept associated with security that was as powerful and as robust and as close to a silver bullet as I've ever seen. It was like, I must be missing something. And so I started digging into it. And the more I dug into it, the more people I talked to, the more things I analyzed, the more stuff that I tried, I came to this realization that, well, yeah, this stuff is absolutely amazing. It is absolutely revolutionary. And, and uh, sometimes when I talk to people, um, I'll just kind of throw down the gauntlet that says, this is going to change the industry as we know it. And I know that's a huge, gigantic statement. And, and, and then it just becomes, okay, let's go back it up. And so the whole concept of cyber deception really gelled and it just became something that I, I have developed an absolute passion about. And one of the things that I found that is really telling when it comes to cyber deception is whenever I talk to people about it, there's always this resistance. There's always this pushback like, no, that can't be right. What about this? What about that? But by the time I get done kind of going through this, most everybody that I talk to is like, oh my gosh, this is the most amazing thing ever. So that's kind of what got me started in this concept of cyber deception. And that was, of course, our conversation last night. Yeah. So anyway, uh, we're not selling anything. Obviously, this is not a product pitch. But the thing is, anytime I find somebody who's really passionate about something and then who's willing to spend a lot of time, a productive COVID, if you do six to nine months, researching and digging into something to be able to come up with something of value. So we talk about cyber deception. I mean, I, I was a career military officer and deception was an important thing. And if we go back and we used to read at the War College different documents and Sun Tzu, the art of war, starts out with basically saying all warfare is based on deception. And so this is not a new concept, but it seems like from your discussions, you said, hey, why can't this work? It's almost like there's 7 billion people out there. How come nobody else has made this thing happen? But yet somehow it looks like this might have been overlooked in the process. What, what is it that, uh, well, how do you describe the deception in the cyber world and how's, how's that work? Or maybe even start with a physical analogy and go from there. So, so the way that I always describe cyber deception kind of goes like this. And I'm going to start by outlying or laying out what I believe is the problem or a problem that we have in the information security industry. And it boils down to we do a very bad job of detecting bad guys when they are when they are on our network and then being able to respond to them. Uh, if you look at, so for example, uh, every year there's a study released by the Ponemon Institute. It's the Ponemon Institute Cost of a Data Breach Study. And there are two facts that come out of that that, that are really, really interesting. One of those has to do with the amount of time it takes us on average to detect and respond to breaches. I don't remember the exact to the minute uh, value, but it, it, it boils down to around seven months. 
the average organization takes around seven months to be able to detect and respond to incidents on their network. And that's a huge problem. The other thing that this study absolutely there's a direct correlation between the amount of time that it takes to detect and respond to a breach and the cost of that data breach. Now, that's important because our jobs in information security are to reduce risk to an acceptable level. Well, one of the ways that we can reduce risk is to try to reduce harm. How do we reduce harm? Well, one way is to detect and respond faster. So where does cyber deception come into this? If we look at the overwhelming majority of our detective technologies, they focus on looking for evil. And the bad guys do a remarkably good job of making evil look like not evil, and therefore they evade detection. So the alternative to looking for evil is looking for abnormal. And there's an entire technology swath out there, user and entity behavioral analytics, that attempts to normalize parts or all of networking environments. So let's look what normal activity is. But trying to normalize an entire network environment is a very, very complicated task. It's a very time-consuming task, and it is always subject to needing to be retuned and retweaked based on changes in the business. So what, what we put out there with cyber deception is to say, what if we placed resources on the network? By resources, I mean anything from credentials in memory to servers, to files, to documents, to traffic, anything like that. We're going to place resources on our network that have no inherent or legitimate mission or business value. They're not there to support the business. And therefore, no one should ever be interacting with those resources. If somebody does interact with those resources, that is, by definition, abnormal. So we've created an almost binary state where normal is no interaction, abnormal is any interaction. And because these resources appear identical to our production resources, if a bad guy manages to compromise our network, when they get in our network, they don't know which resources are real and which ones are not. And therefore, all it takes is for the attacker to interact with one deceptive resource, and we become aware of them and can respond immediately. So it becomes, in effect, a high-fidelity, low-noise detection scenario that allows us to identify the bad guys on our network really quickly and really effectively. And what makes this even cooler is there's a common saying. It's not perfectly accurate, but there's a common saying that says, in the IT industry, defenders need to be right 100% of the time. Attackers need to be right once. Well, when we start deploying deceptive resources, or as I call them, notional resources on our network, the attackers can avoid, evade, or miss all of them but if they hit one of them, we catch them. So we create a situation when it comes to detecting bad guys on our network that the attackers now need to be right 100% of the time and the defenders only need to be right once. So we are now creating a detection capability that flips the script 
and gives defenders the first advantage that they've had in anything, any memory that I have. Now, that is fascinating. Now, it sounds when you're first describing, talking about things that have no legitimate business use, we call those honeypots. And honeypots have been around for a while, and they're basically designed not necessarily to lure somebody, although they could be. The problem, of course, luring could get you in trouble legally if you try to go ahead and go to court. And someone said, well, hey, you uh, you tried to pull me into this. But rather, if it's something is just sitting there as big and fat and appealing, we used to kind of, I used to talk about that in my classes as saying, you'd put a file called executivesalaries.xls in the root directory of the financial server. Now, everybody from finance knows not to mess with it. It's not real, but not everybody else does. And it sure looks interesting. But as soon as you touch it, boom, you set off an alarm. So what you had said then is we can have systems, we can have files, we can have traffic. Now, that was the thing that stood out to me when you gave the list. I understand setting out a file and you can booby trap it, setting out a device if someone hits an IP address or it goes to a particular port on a machine or a non-machine. Yeah, that's wrong. But how, what about this traffic part? How does that work? Uh, sure. So I want you to think about this, right? If, if I create a fake system, a fake server on the network, well, today, if a bad guy gets on my network, they are probably not expecting deception. So they scan my network, they do whatever they want to do, and they bump into my fake system. I detect them. Everything's golden. But what if we have an attacker that is a little bit more sophisticated and they're like, hmm, let's go ahead. Ooh, I see this server over there. I see this IP address over there, but why don't I see anybody communicating with it? Well, that could raise suspicions. So one of the things is, so if I'm a bad guy and I get on a network and I believe that deception is being used against me, one of the things that I would do is slow my attack down and maybe just fire up a sniffer, start watching network traffic because the real systems will actually have packets coming from and going to them. So if I'm going to create a believable deceptive environment, one of the ways that I can do that is to set up those resources, but to supplement that with effectively fake network traffic that makes those resources appear to be in use and active. And that provides two benefits. Benefit number one is it makes these fake resources more believable to the attacker. Benefit number two is if an attacker, instead of actively scanning our networks, if all they do is sniff traffic, look for ARP traffic or other types of communication, we are generating that which can attract the attacker to our deceptive resources. So maybe an overly obvious example is what if I generated periodic telnet traffic to what appears to be a telnet server. Well, telnet involves sending information in the clear. So we are actually handing the attackers credentials to access a system. And it's going to appear that somebody just used telnet when they shouldn't have, when in reality, I have created that attractive target. I have painted that target to make it look really, really attractive and really believable by supplementing the fake system with fake network traffic that's, you know, that supports that. But I could take it even further. What if I created a fake Facebook account talking about a fake employee that talks about the fake deployment of a fake server using fake Telnet? So now when the attacker is doing their reconnaissance, when they're trying to learn about the environment that they're ready to attack, they are now expecting to see Telnet. When I give them what they expect, then 
there's no questions asked. Back in the, I think it was early 80s, there was an espionage situation where the United States became aware of an espionage or a program by the Soviet Union that was attempting to acquire technology from the Western world, either through direct espionage or through purchasing that uh, technology through shell companies. So the United States became aware that this was going on and they had a list of all of the players involved. Rather than going out and arresting all of those people or confronting them in some way, the architect of the plan basically says, well, now we know what the Soviets want. Let's help them with their shopping. So the, we became aware at that point in time that the Soviets were interested in some piece of technology related to controlling a natural gas pipeline out of Siberia. They were going to interact with a Canadian company that was going to, that had that technology. So what the U.S. and this Canadian company did was they created a fake version of this technology that was legitimate enough to be able to to pass Soviet quality assurance checks. So the Soviets stole this technology or they acquired it. They implemented the technology and the result was the largest non-nuclear explosion seen from space because the technology ultimately failed. We knew what they were looking for and we gave it to them. And the same thing applies from a deception perspective in IT. We know what the attackers are going to look for. So let's give them what they're looking for. And if we do this right, it not only allows us to rapidly detect the bad guys, but if the bad guys are interacting with fake systems and fake resources and fake files and fake credentials, we can also watch their behavior, which allows us to collect more effective threat intelligence and attack attribution information. Better intelligence allows us to do better deception, which allows us to collect better intelligence which allows us to do better deception. So it's this really amazing sort of self-improving cycle that allows us to use deception, use lies, misleading information to affect the behavior of the attackers. So this is a, 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 an area of technology where rather than trying to affect the technology of the attackers, we are trying to target the mind of the attackers. We're trying to affect the behavior of the attackers. One of the biggest drawbacks that I see in modern computer security is we are exclusively technology focused and we lose track of the fact that our attackers are not technology. They are people. And one of the ways that we can protect ourselves is to influence the minds of the human beings, the people that are attacking us. And that's something that has been absent from the entirety of our cybersecurity planning. We have ignored the fact that attackers are people. Well, let's target the fact that attackers are people. Now, it's interesting because we kind of have the reverse when we look at information security awareness training, because we said, hey, the victims are people and attackers typically do things like social engineering. Let me try to go ahead and mess with your mind or come up with a pretext. That sounds totally plausible. But here we've got the reverse now where in a way we're sort of pretexting the defense, at which point attacker comes in, takes a look around and goes, ooh, that looks good. Or be careful. It's dangerous out there. And even moving cautiously what they're going to be able to do is potentially say, hmm, I've ingested all this network traffic. 
I've seen all these endpoints talking to these other points. I've seen this type of traffic, these protocols. This matches what my pre-intelligence research suggests I should expect. So you go in very, very confident. However, at some point in time, you're going to reach out and touch something and you're going to trip an alarm. Mm -hmm. Now, from the perception perception, my first thought is, is that if somebody hits a tripwire, I'm not going to kick them out of the network right away because then they know where the tripwire is. You let them bop around a little bit and then they say, okay, now you have no idea why you got kicked out. But while the person or the attacker is in between that, I just got in and I just tripped a wire to hey, what happened, how do you keep them from causing any real damage or gathering any real intelligence? Yeah, and, and, and I'll, I'll follow up on that. I'll answer that question in just a second, but I will follow up on that. The second you detect the attacker on your network, you have instantly gained the most actionable and and attack-specific threat intelligence, right? If nothing else, you know what IP address they're coming coming from. So if I kick them out immediately, as, as Gmark said, there's always the chance that they're going to recognize that that's the tripwire and then they won't, they won't touch that. So I don't want to tip off the attacker. But the same thing happens if I kick them out, I have also burned that threat intelligence. So what I'm going to do is once I identify them on my network, I'm just going to watch them, right? Because if you think about this, and this is one of these sort of like weird, obvious statements that is really underrated. Our networks are ours. We own them. We control them. We have control over every packet that comes and goes from our network if we so choose to exercise it. So if the bad guy's on my network and I have directed, I have influenced that attacker to go to deceptive hosts, deceptive files, deceptive resources, I'm just going to let him stay there. Because by letting him stay on my network, I collect more and more threat intelligence. Once I kick them off, I burn that threat, or at least burn some of that threat intelligence. So as long as the attacker isn't interacting directly with critical resources, as long as I push them over to the deceptive area and they're not really causing any harm, I tie up their time, I keep them occupied, I collect threat intelligence so I I better understand what their behaviors are. So now I don't need to worry about that IP address that they're coming from. If they dropped off and came back from a different IP address, they are going to execute basically the same behaviors so I can do a better job of keeping track of them. Where this gets amazingly cool and the end or some of the end game of this is so there are studies out there that show that when you have a security operations center, a SOC, one out of three alerts that hits your security operations center is a false positive. What that means is if you have three SOC analysts, you're basically paying one of them to do nothing because we don't have high fidelity, low noise detection capability. When we add in deception and gain this benefit of high fidelity, low noise detection, that means that I can take that SOC analyst that is messing around with false positives all day and I can reallocate them. Now, what am I going to reallocate them to do? Well, I've detected the bad guy in a very reliable way. I have shunted them off to deceptive areas and I've collected threat intelligence. I know what their behavior is. I know what they're going to go do. What if I take that defender that used to be wading through logs and I have that defender engage the attacker in real time? 
What if that defense, if, if the attacker starts scanning for things, I give them something. I, what if I hijack the attacker's session and modify the packets coming and going from the attacker in real time to confuse, distract, disrupt, delay the attacker? The advantage of this is without this type of activity, we our defensive strategies exclusively pit technology against a human. And a creative, determined, and intelligent human when combating static technology is always going to win. So if we can give our blue team, our defenders, more time because they're not wading through false positives and things like that, we can give them the ability to actively engage the attackers on our network, to move them where we want them, to place bait, to place lures, to direct them anywhere that we want, to modify the attacker's behavior in any way that we want. And you know whether that is kick the bad guys off of our network, whether that is uh, attribution so we can find out who the attacker is for potential prosecution. Imagine a situation where an attacker gets onto your network. You almost immediately detect the attacker. You shunt them off to a uh, a fake environment. You watch what they do, uh, collecting threat intelligence, but you also collect evidence of their activity. Your blue team is actively engaging the attacker presenting them with situations that allow the blue team to collect more information about the attacker while you contact law enforcement. So now law enforcement is on the way to the attacker as you're keeping the attacker involved or engaged in real time. That's the kind of stuff that we can ultimately do. Now, it's not going to work in every case because some attackers are outside of jurisdictions and all that, but that's the benefit that we're looking for. This high fidelity, low noise detection that allows for the collection of advanced threat intelligence and attribution information that in turn allows us to actively engage the attacker in real time. Now, we don't need to do all of that today. Uh, I was having a conversation with one of my students uh, at this conference last night, and he was like, well, what if I don't have the capability to do all that active engagement and threat intelligence? I said, it doesn't matter. Today, we can't even detect bad guys on our network reliably. So what if we just created a capability that allows us to more quickly detect and respond to attacks? That's step one. That's all we need today. Now, as the attackers become more aware of deception, as they become more careful in their activities, as they start to look for the subtle differences between deceptive systems and real systems, the first effect is we have already slowed the attacker down. They have to take baby steps in our network to avoid getting caught. So we've already won because we've slowed the attacker down. But in addition to that, we also can then go and collect all that great information. So in, you know, the way that I look at it is today, we can use very simplistic deception and it will work really well at detecting the bad guys. As the bad guys become more sophisticated, we know what more sophisticated deception looks like. We add more color, we add packets, we add social engineering posts, we add all this amazing stuff, and we can stay ahead of what the attackers are expecting. And again, it boils down to the only thing that the attacker has to go by when it comes to understanding our environments 
are the packets they send and the packets they receive. And we have the potential of controlling all of those. So it's really awesome. That's really cool. I mean, as you're telling me about this, I'm thinking about Cliff Stoll's Cuckoo's Egg. Mm -hmm. I got that book many years ago. I think I got it in 1990. I was over at the Office of Naval Research Europe and attended a talk. And the next day, they sent me the book as a promotional. And I said, uh, I really can't take this because I'm back on active duty. And they said, no, it's not a gift. This is marketing material. We send this to everybody who comes to our talk. And I checked around. And they said, yeah, you're fine. Keep it. And if you ever read Cliff Stoll's book, it's fascinating because he found like a 50 cent accounting error in his mainframe bill. And he said, hey, it's off by 50 cents. And they're like, forget about it. And he's like, but it's wrong. It's like, look, here's 50 cents. Go away, kid. You bother me. But he's an astronomer. This is how you find Pluto. It's one little dot that was here and now it's there. And maybe Pluto will get its license back you know, the, the, for, as a planet. Anyway, without going too much off topic, what he did is he eventually found this guy poking around. And he set up all these honeypots. And in one place in the book, he drags in these printers from all over the building and sets them all up so he can watch all these connections trying to see what's happening. Now, the good news is back then, as you're talking about uh, 9,600 baht or something like that, so you're already slowed down. Today, though, when you think about gigabit Ethernet or beyond, the speed and the rapidity at which an attacker can go ahead and just grab secrets and get out of Dodge is amazing. So when we look at what we would consider to be the potential bad guys, the advanced persistent threats or APTs, different APTs in general tend to have characteristics. Those that are named bear tend to represent Russia, those that, you know, the pandas and things like that. And we have a different elements. But from what I've understood from people who've done threat intel, there's actually some basic MOs. If you're a Russian attacker, you get in, you smash, you grab, you get out. You're noisy and loud, but you're fast. It turns out the Chinese tend to be a little bit more measured and controlled and kind of like a ninja and quiet and things like that. So from a if you will, from a pirate to a ninja, how would the cyber deception perhaps work differently? Or do we just set up the same defenses and does it work in all cases? So really good question. So I would say in general, it's we set up basically the same defenses. Now, that said, so I'll, I'll, I'll throw out something. So one resource that I find absolutely fantastic and really useful when it comes to understanding the adversaries is MITRE's attack matrix, attack.mitre.com. And in their attack matrix, they not only identify all kinds of tactics and techniques that are used by attackers, but they also break that down into different threat groups. So you can actually see what different threat groups do. Now, so that's really awesome. And it's fantastic to be able to go, all right, well, if I know that this particular threat group is targeting an organization that is similar to mine, like it's the same industry or whatever. I can look at attack, MITRE's attack, and I can say, what are the techniques that are used by that particular uh, threat group? And I can say, okay, well, and I'm just going to come up with a really lame one, right? They do port scanning. Okay, if they do port scanning, and I know they're going to get on my network, and they're going to scan me, then what I'm going to do is I'm going to create fake responses to those port scans. So we can look at what the attackers do, and then we can say, all right, how can I position a deceptive resource? So a, re a better example than port scanning, because nobody really does that, is dumping credentials out of memory. So a bad guy gets on my network and they dump credentials out of memory and then they try to crack those passwords. Well, if I plant 
credentials in memory. And maybe I give those credentials a password that is slightly easier to crack than my actual production ones. Then when the bad guy gets on and I know that they're going to dump and try to crack passwords, I have given them a password that they can then go ahead and use. Now, what I might do, and if you want to take this to its extreme, what if I planted different credentials on every key system in my network? I made those credentials part of Active Directory, but I used what are called fine-grained password policies to make those credentials lockout. The account lockout happens after one failed login attempt. So I've got a different credential on each system. The attackers get access to those. The credentials that are loaded into memory are bad. So when the attacker cracks that password and they try to use it, it instantly generates an account lockout, which generates a log entry. And because that credential was only on one computer, I instantly know that the attacker is on that computer and which, you know, that the attacker is there and is on that specific computer. So we can apply that same kind of logic to an understanding of everything that the attackers do. Now, we could take this a step further. About a year ago or so, MITRE released something that they called SHIELD, shield.mitre.com. What SHIELD was, was a set of active defense and deceptive techniques that were mapped directly to attack. Now, just over the last week or so, SHIELD has basically been terminated in favor of, I think they call it Engage or something like that. So there's like engage.mitre.com. I think that, and it's the same concept. It is a bunch of deceptive actions that are tied and mapped directly to the tactics and techniques from MITRE's attack matrix. So the way that I would do this is if I knew that some threat group was attacking me, I identify all of the techniques and tactics that are used by that particular threat group. I pull that out of MITRE's attack matrix, and then I take each of those tactics and map that to engage. And engage is going to give me a whole list of here are some different things you can do with different goals. If I'm trying to detect the attacker, here's what I can do. If I'm trying to delay the attacker, here's what I can do. If I'm trying to distract the attacker, here's what I can do. But what, where it gets really interesting is some of the things that I want to do with the attacker don't have to do with disrupting them. It has to do with reinforcing them. Sometimes I want to make the attacker feel good. I want to reinforce that they are getting good information so that I can continue their process. So in terms of the question about what do I do about these different threat groups and all that, well, I've got a listing of the behaviors of those threat groups, and I have an entire collection of deceptive operations that I can run that directly tie to that. So from a planning perspective, I can go, all right, who's attacking me? What threat intelligence reports do I have? Who's going to be targeting me? What are the, the tactics and techniques that that threat group uses? And then I can just go literally pick a list of deceptive deception and active response characteristics that I can incorporate into my deception strategy. Now, don't get me wrong. You don't need to do this. You don't need to customize your deception strategy to a given attack group. You can just deploy good decep deception around your network and catch, well, anybody. 
But if you do have actionable or credible intel that says somebody's after you, you can absolutely target it directly to them. And that's one of the things you can do with the MITRE ATT&CK framework is you can create the heat maps, which basically look at different threat actors and say, okay, what is this one using? What is that one using? And things such as that. And as a result, eventually what's going to happen is that you'll be able to see where is there an overlap? Where is this particular attacker and the other attacker and those that we consider from our threat intelligence to be our biggest threat all have a common technique? And so if they're going to use that tactic and technique to try to get in, that's where we're going to reinforce what we're doing. And I love the idea that you have instead of just saying, hey, we're only here to deceive to get rid of somebody. We're also here to deceive to kind of string them on a little bit, get them to turn over more cards in their deck, expose a little bit more about what they have so that we can better process that threat intelligence. Now, let me ask you kind of a, a spoiler question here, because this is made interesting from a conception of, okay, maybe I can do this, maybe I can't. Back in May of 2021, the president issued an executive order, which included, among other things, directive to go ahead to a zero trust environment. We're in a zero trust, everything's encrypted, everything's authenticated. So theoretically speaking, if I've got a true zero trust network, there is nowhere for an attacker to get a toehold. No machine will speak to you. They're not going to answer a uh, ICMP ping. They're not going to answer a SIN with a SIN act. They're simply going to only respond if you're in the encrypted domain. And so I said, OK, fine, uh, I'm speaking IPsec. If you're in the club, it works. Now, in a situation like that, where we've got basically a hall of encrypted mirrors, is there even any need for doing de deception or do we declare that, hey, this vision of zero trust is absolutely perfect and therefore we don't have to do anything else? So I would say the vision of zero trust is absolutely perfect and we don't need to do anything else except for one fact. We have users, right? The fact of the matter is in a zero trust environment, zero trust doesn't mean zero trust. It means specifically granted trust. So the fact of the matter is users still exist. Users have access to things. So if I'm a bad guy and I can't find a direct foothold into a network, I can't find an open port that I can connect up to. I can't find a, a, a jack that I can plug into and get an IP address. I don't have a way into the network. Then I don't target the network. I target the user. And so social engineering, client side exploits, all that kind of stuff, because if I can become a user, or at least if I can appear to be a user, then I'm part of the club, mm -hmm. right? So, so in that context, yeah, zero trust is fantastic for keeping strangers away. But what about if somebody has an absolutely perfect disguise as a legitimate user? And, and that's where... I think that zero trust is great, but I do think that it's not the panacea because the fact of the matter is there are people who are trusted and the attackers can target them. And so even in those cases, so if a bad guy manages, if, if I'm a user in an environment and a bad guy gets me to click on the wrong thing, to open up the wrong attachment, or for that matter, if the bad guy just calls me up and convinces me to act in a particular way, then the bad guy could take advantage of the trust that has been placed in me. That said, the bad guys still don't understand the environment. So just because a bad guy is now effectively a legitimate user doesn't mean they know what's what and where's where.
So we still have an opportunity to deploy deception because there's a key difference between users and legitimate people and bad guys. And that has to do with knowledge of the environment. Think about it like this. Imagine that your home, it is a dark night. Let's say there's a storm. It's knocked out the power. It's pitch black. You can't see anything in your house and you hear a noise. Now, is it your cat jumping off the couch? Is it your kid getting up to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night? Nope. I know what those sounds are like. This is something different. There's somebody in my house. Okay. Well, if there's somebody in my house, um, first of all, I have the advantage because it is my house. But the other thing is when that person is in my house in that pitch black night, they don't know what my house looks like. So the likelihood is as that person moves through my house, they are going to bump into a table. They're going to knock over a lamp. They're going to, God forbid, step on my kid's Legos. I wouldn't wish that on anybody, even some invader in my house. But the point is they're going to do, they're going to step on that squeaky floorboard. They don't know what they're doing. So they're going to bump into things. So effectively what we're doing here is we are placing lamps and tables and Legos on our network. And however the bad guy gets in there, whether they actually are a, a real user that is malicious whether they have taken over the permissions of a real user or whether they've just directly attacked my environment. They don't know what my environment is. Therefore, they don't know where the tables and the lamps and the Legos are. And again, now all they have to do is bump into one of those. I become aware. And now because this is my house, it's my network. I now have an advantage. I know what's what and where's where. So I know how to get out of my house or I know where my phone is to call the police or whatever else it is that I'm going to do. So even in sort of zero trust environments, until we eliminate users, we always have a threat vector because users can be malicious and users can be tricked. So yeah, zero trust is great. It doesn't eliminate this. What it does, uh, one example that I always give is in the conflict in Vietnam, the North Vietnamese army and the Viet Cong would place punji stakes in the trails, basically sharpened bamboo stakes covered up so that when the, the American GIs would step on them, they would break through the covering and they would impale their foot on the punji stake and that would take them out of combat, right? Well, they didn't plant these punji stakes everywhere in the jungle because the U.S. soldiers weren't going everywhere. They were going through the trails. So the thick jungle restricted the enemy's freedom of movement. So the, the uh, Vietnamese only needed to plant their traps in certain areas. Well, if we talk about regular security technology, whether it's zero trust or just our regular traditional logging, monitoring, IDS, firewalls, DLP, all this stuff, if the attacker is going to avoid detection by all of that other stuff, there's only certain things on our network that they can do. We have restricted the attacker's freedom of movement. And therefore, when we are planting our tables and our lamps and our Legos, we only need to do it in those places that the attacker can otherwise go undetected. And again, we end up with the advantage. That is 
amazing. And it's really fascinating that you've thought through all this and you've got something that's really functional that is an adjunct to existing security. So it's not going to replace what's out there. You're not going to go ahead and fire all your other security vendors. But adding this looks like it's going to create a huge opportunity and a real advantage now for the defenders. Now, we're just about almost out of time, but if somebody wanted more information, I understand that you're putting together a course on this where someone could learn a lot more. What, what can you tell us about that? Sure. We are in the final stages. We are about to officially post it or whatever, but I have put together uh, a class for SANS. It is uh, the number code for that is uh, Security 550. Um, the title of the class is Cyber Deception, Attack Detection, Disruption, and Active Defense. So this class is going to go live. It's first run live in November of this year. So that's a great place to go ahead and, uh, you know, love to see everybody there. And and hopefully that'd be fantastic. Uh, a couple other places that I can point you to, uh, if you go to YouTube and look up Take Back the Advantage, you will see a number of interviews that I've done with cyber deception vendors and, and folks that are involved in deception. So there's some great places there. I've got a fairly bad website called takebacktheadvantage.com that I'm also using to do some blog posting as well. So if you're interested in any of this stuff whatsoever, those would be some great resources to look at. Well, thank you very much. Kevin Fiscus, amazing stuff that you're working on. As always, glad to catch up with you again in person. And again, thank you for sharing your time with everybody on the show. So again, this is G. Mark Hardy here with CISO Tradecraft. And we encourage you to go ahead and share this with your friends. Let everybody know where you're learning your good stuff from. Until next time, stay safe and best luck in terms of tricking the bad guys.